On Monday's episode, we discussed the foundations of CSS. It was really great, so go back and listen to it if you haven't already. And today, in this special bonus episode, we're going to continue the conversation by covering some more advanced topics and going a little bit in more in-depth in some other areas of CSS. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. I'm Emma. And I'm Lindsay, and we're debugging the tech industry. Our first topic today is going to be Grid and Flexbox. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about how at this point in history, most people are looking at websites on their phone instead of on their desktop. And so Flexbox came around because making websites responsive or making it so that different websites looked good on different screen sizes was pretty tricky. And so Flexbox was a way of combating that and making it easier to make things responsive. So Flexbox is a one-dimensional layout system where you can align things in rows and columns and decide how things wrap if the screens get smaller and a lot of really great things there. And then Grid is even more recent. And so We're going to talk a little bit later in this episode about Bootstrap and other CSS libraries, but essentially it's uh, Bootstrap was really, really popular for making grids for different websites and allowing you to have different things positioned in that way. And so Grid came about in order to build that directly into CSS. So they both have this container and child mindset. You have this container that contains a bunch of different elements, and then you can do certain things to the container and certain things to the items within that container. But Grid is a little bit more two-dimensional than Flex, where you're aligning things in both rows and columns, and then there are also uh, spaces within those rows and columns so that you can space different elements that way. There's also fractional units or FRs, which allow you to essentially say, this is going to take up two thirds of the page. This is going to take up one third of the page and other fractions from there. So that's been really helpful. I really, really like those FR units. And essentially this just makes it so that positioning things is so much easier and it's no longer a nightmare to get everything aligned and you can make more complex layouts for your sites. You can also use these together so they're not exclusive and Jen Simmons has a lot of really great materials on that so I'd really recommend looking at her stuff. But these have made CSS so much easier for me and make it a lot more enjoyable to work with. Have you all used them too? Of course, yes. I love CSS Grid and Flexbox. I I feel like I'm a late adopter to Grid. I only started using it like a few months ago because I wasn't doing a lot of CSS at my day job, but it is so much easier. And yes, it does have a learning curve, but I think about the fact that we don't have to have an additional library now to create these grids. And that's a beautiful thing. I think, yeah, we always get the question of like, should I use Flexbox or Grid? Like, which one should I use in my application? I'm like, the answer is both. You just kind of have to be able to understand the differences and how they function, right? So you mentioned that Flexbox, it's used for one-dimensional layout. So either you're aligning things vertically along the y-axis or horizontally along the x-axis. So an example might be trying to space out navigation items in a top nav bar. Or if you have a full-page sidebar, like the items within that and, and getting them to 
you know, space themselves evenly and whatnot. So that's where Fluxbox shines. And then grid is definitely more two-dimensional. It's, let's say you have a full page, like sidebar on the left, it takes up, you know, the entire view height. And then let's say we've got a main content area and then a footer. And the footer goes from, you know, the sidebar to the to the right viewport edge. This is where grid shines, right? But within there, you can also use Fluxbox. And I think it's important to note too, you could use Flexbox to do everything. The difference is it's gonna require a lot of like wrapper divs and that's maybe not as accessible, right? So that's why they're good complements to each other. And just just to be clear, I've been coding for many, many, many years now and I'm still not using grid yet. And it's something I do want to learn, but if you're if you're not using it yet, that's totally fine. Yeah. I mean, it'll, it's one of those things that once you start learning it, though, you're really excited about it. Um, I do have one question about Grid, just because I'm not very familiar with it. How is the browser support for it? I think it's pretty good, except uh, actually, I'm going to look it up right now because might as well have my computer here. I think certain pieces still aren't in Internet Explorer yet, but a lot of it is it's just certain pieces of it that aren't there yet. Okay. I could be wrong with that. So... I have it up right here. So CSS grid layout is supported in Edge, Firefox, Chrome, Safari, Opera. It is partially supported in IE 11 with the prefix MS. So okay. so if you have auto prefixers set up, that then it should be pretty good. Um, so yeah, it, it seems to be very widely supported. Subgrid, on the other hand, which we won't be talking about that much, I think is still um, in the process of getting support. I think, too, there are so many fun games that we'll link in the, the show notes where you can actually go learn Flexbox and Grid. So we've got like Flexbox Froggy, and it walks you through how to move frogs onto different lily pads using the Flexbox, you know, attributes and everything. Uh, there's also Grid Garden and, and all these other fun games that make it very easy to learn. And I do believe that uh, Sarah Dresner also put together like a, a grid generator, I think. Yes, yes, she did. I'm on Product Hunt at the moment. She made this grid generator which basically allows you in the ui to like go draw this grid and then it'll generate the css code for you so if it is a little intimidating for you if you're having trouble moving off tables to lay things out go check out those resources yeah i think my favorite part about flexbox is actually centering things vertically <laughs> because that was always such a pain point so being able to center something not just horizontally but also vertically is really really awesome about Flexbox, um, makes it really easy. Instead of having to do all these hacks, I think it's like three lines of code. I always mix up, what is it, justify content and align items. I always, always miss the max, well, I can't even speak. I always mix them up and always have to go and see which one is the main axis and which one's the cross axis. Even though I've written blogs, like I still have to go look it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, though, is that we have those resources available to look up. And there's also such thing as trial and error, which is usually my go-to strategy. <laughs> totally. Well, anyway, do you want to transition talking about animations? Transition was the perfect word to use there. That was I good. I did not even mean that. And now I'm thinking about how much of a genius I am, you know, subconsciously. <laughs> <laughs> no egos here. So transitioning <laughs> into animations, you can do some pretty cool things with CSS, namely using transitions and transforms uh, to animate pieces of your product and your UI. Uh, and this has many benefits, right? Uh, we could do a whole episode on animations, but some of the benefits include uh, actually gaining a, a little bit of a buffer when it comes to loading resources. If you add an animation that's interactive to something, users are, are going to 
be willing to wait a little bit longer in terms of, you know, waiting for this resource to load than if you didn't have any animations. So that's one of the benefits. Uh, and you actually don't even need any libraries to do it. You can go and add vanilla CSS today to create some of these animations. So that's where this concept of transform and transformations comes in. And these are used to modify the appearance of an element through translation or rotation, skewing, and other things. So when we talk translation, it's about moving an element along the horizontal or vertical axis. So you can think about a sidebar that moves in and out of the UI if you click the hamburger menu um, or the X, right? So if I click the hamburger menu, it slides in from the left. That's a You can use translate, uh, translate X to do this. Versus rotate, rotates around a fixed point within your two-dimensional plane. And it doesn't actually deform the shape, uh, unlike some of the other uh, transform functions. So we can rotate a spinner in the UI, for example. And then skew, in contrast, actually does distort an element. Uh, it's a little bit weird. So if you haven't heard of it, I would recommend go checking out like what it does. Um, but you can actually skew an element on a two-dimensional plane and, and actually completely, I wouldn't say destroy, but it loses the integrity of the original shape. So these are some of the basic transforms that you can use. And how do we actually use them, right? You might have heard of these things called keyframes, and this gives you these steps along a timeline to animate these things. And so when we think about an animation, we've got a starting point and an ending point. And so there are two ways within this keyframe, um, which is essentially just like a wrapper, right? So you might see it defined as at keyframes and then like a function name. And it's almost like a function name if you were trying to compare it with like JavaScript syntax, for example. And within these curly braces, you got two options. Um, you can de declare a from and to keywords. So where am I starting with my animation? What's the starting point? And where do I want this to end up? So if I'm going back to the sidebar that translates itself in, the starting point is off of the viewport. So maybe it's like the left position is negative 500 pixels. And I want it to come to within the window, right? I want to be able to see it. So then we want to translate it to uh, a left of zero. And so you can define it with these values. But you can also do a little bit more complex. You can define at 0% of this animation, I want it to be here. And maybe at like 30%, I want to rotate it. And then at 70%, let's skew it. And then define, you know, the end fades of 100. So this allows you to kind of create this timeline to animate things. And there are libraries you can use to help. We've got like GreenSock for animation, which also works with timelines, but that's not actually CSS. It's a, a JavaScript animation library, but it's pretty cool. Like you can do things, uh, animations like this in CSS, and uh, there are lots of fun things that you can do. Have you guys worked a lot with keyframes? Like, do you use them a lot or? I've used them very, not, I don't want to say rarely, but I have used them to make slideshows. So that's probably my favorite way to make, uh, to use them is to, if, especially if the slideshow is um, automated and isn't, doesn't have user interaction, I use keyframes to just rotate through those. I think uh, Cassidy Williams has a really good code pen on that, which is really, really neat. And I was looking through that just to kind of get some research on keyframes and I thought it was really cool. So uh, what about y'all? I don't really use keyframes that much, but I use animations a lot in you know just skipping the keyframes component uh it's they're they're really useful for like these micro interactions enhances the whole user experience and you know working in e-commerce you don't generally notice these things when you're when you're shopping on the store but when you're the one who's you know building out the store it's these little animations that you add to 
add to this site for the overall user experience that can actually make or break a purchase. So it's, it's, they're really fun to work with. Totally. Going on top of that, we talk a lot about web performance and the web performance itself is really important, but also on top of that, perceived performance is really important. So how fast people think a site is, even if it's not actually as fast as it seems to them and adding some subtle animations can really improve the perceived performance of a site. And so that's definitely something to think about as well. If but if you have a ton of like JavaScript animations, you're actually making it less performant. So Well, I think there's a threshold, right? So if you look at Greenstock yeah. Animation Library, it actually doesn't have too many negative performance implications up to a certain point, right? I think the misconception is, yeah, if you use a, a, a JavaScript animation library, automatically like you get negative performance. But I think that's untrue up to a certain threshold. Uh, I honestly don't know it, but uh, I would say like if you... If you can do simple CSS animations, if you're not doing super complex like SVG animation on a timeline, stick with CSS, right? One of the ways that you can kind of add your brand personality into your product is by adding in different timing functions for things. So you might see transition, background color, 0.1 seconds linear. And like this again goes back to the shorthand, which we discussed in the first episode. But what is linear? And that is a transition timing function. So if you think about this timeline, like how do you want your elements to move in regards to velocity or speed along this timeline? And what does that look like? So linear is, is you know, it's linear, right? So you, your object will transition evenly across the whole animation. Ease in and ease out are the opposites of each other. So ease in starts slowly and the speed is going to increase until the animation is complete. Ease out is just the opposite. So it starts faster and it slows down to the end but then you get this cool combination of ease in and out so it's like it's like a bell curve right start slowly speeds up slows down again uh, and if none of these are really doing your product justice you want to add some more personality you can define these things called cubic bezies uh, you define your curve right what do you want your velocity to look like along your timeline and there are plenty of tools that can help you you know declare these cubic bezier functions we can link a few down in the show notes but great way to again enhance your perceived performance as well as build in some brand identity to your products. Not going to lie, I had no idea about what any of those linear functions meant. And I've literally, I with all those animation timing functions, I always just like throw one in and see what happens. I didn't even really think about that. I'm kind of I'm thankful that you went through and explained what all of those meant. Yeah, I'm, I'm team easing out for pretty much everything as, as my default. It's just funny because CSS has this reputation of being easy, right? But then you look a little deeper and you're like, oh, specificity. Oh, cubic Bezier functions. There's a lot of math in here that we just kind of take for granted, right? Because that we have developed tools in the industry to help us with these things like, you know, declaring like linear and ease in and out. But when you really dig down into it, like this is very technical. We don't give it enough credit. Yeah, this is super cool. I like, I'm really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play with a lot of these when I'm done just because I never really thought about the differences of them. I just sort of, like I said, play around with them and see what happens. Speaking of math, uh, media queries has to do with some numbers and, and screen resolutions. So let's jump into that. Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit more about media queries? Sure. Um, so media queries, when I first think about media queries, I always think about responsive design. So I always think about having the min width or max width to change the styles for certain parameters. But there's also other ones. So there's screen. So when you're on a screen, there's also print when you're printing something out, which is how we do like print style sheets. 
And there's actually two new ones that I'm pretty excited about. So there's Prefer's Color Scheme, which is your user settings are in dark mode or light mode. And then there's also Prefer's Reduced Motion, which is if... Um, I, I don't know if there's one on Windows, but on Mac, they if you go into the accessibility settings, I think it's for the most recent update. Uh, you can go to the accessibility settings in the system preferences. And then in the display settings, you can check on this reduced motion. And what that does is it helps people who have um, vestib- vestibular disorders. So people who get motion sickness, um, it, it's really helpful. So you can like take away all of those animations for people who might get sick or get like a sense of vertigo. But yeah, so those are two really cool new media queries that I'm super excited about. And there's one more that I just learned about this week when I was at Codeland. And it was, um, I went to Jen Simmons workshop and she started talking about something called support. So this isn't a media query, but it is a query. So you can do at support. And if something supports grid, for example, you can use grid versus using something else. And I was like, holy guacamole, that is super cool. Never heard of that before. So but yeah, the most common ones are min width and max width and screen. The other two are a little bit newer, I think. And I'm really, really excited about especially those latter two, because I think they're going to be big for accessibility. So any questions about media queries or queries in general? I didn't know about the others other than min width, max width. I actually had heard about supports before because we've used it for fallbacks uh, with layouts with Flexbox uh, when that was pretty new. But prefer color scheme and prefers reduced motion. Like, that's super cool. Had no idea. Yeah, it's based primarily on user preferences uh, or system preferences. One disclaimer is... um, is we probably should be mindful of honoring what the user selects on a website over the system preferences because some people don't have that available to them. So if you're going to do like dark mode or reduce motion on your website, just keep in mind that you might want to provide an option that's user selected versus versus in the system settings. Because for like I said before, I'm not even sure if reduced motion is even on all operating systems. I I don't know if it's on previous versions of Mac. Like I'm on Mojave or whatever it's called. So one of the more <laughs> one of the more recent ones. So I think that's a newer one. But if you have that, you'll notice that when you're on your MacBook, if you have it selected on, you know, when you swipe between screens, instead of doing that like animation effect, it'll just like appear. It'll fade in and out instead. It's kind of neat. I actually turned those animations off on my phone and now it kind of just like fades into the next app. Like it's not like the big zooming in and out when you enter and exit apps. I don't know why I did that, but I kind of like it. Yeah. So I, it's, a, it's a very similar concept to uh, when you're doing it on your um, your desktop. So uh, really, really neat. And I've been learning a lot about those two in particular recently. And now with like dark mode and designing for dark mode, I've found the prefers color scheme one very, very interesting. So I can't wait to learn more about that. So just as a side note, like I recently did a, I don't want to say a redesign, but a facelift on my, uh, on my website, because I really wanted to make it more friendly to switching between light and dark mode. So that was the main motivation for that. I'm really excited about about those last two. So 
But yeah, so let's uh, transition into um, like naming conventions and hierarchies, because I think uh, we know a lot about the rules of CSS, but uh, there's all these uh, naming mechanisms. So Emma, do you want to start talking about those? Yeah, so one of the biggest pain points that people have or developers have with CSS is that specificity is hard and there's no real hierarchy necessarily, right? We've got the cascade, which kind of determines, you know, where elements are within the page structure, but we don't necessarily have a specific way to enforce rules or, or avoid collisions. And this leads people to adding importance all over the place. And I can guarantee you those styles are not important. So yeah, naming conventions, uh, they help us scope styles, uh, you know, from like a, a it's not Forcible, it's a superficial level, right? So scoping styles superficially to help prevent spe- specificity overrides and collisions. And so we can, one of the most popular ways uh, to do this is called BEM. You might've heard of it. It stands for block element modifier. And it is a naming convention for helping to avoid these collisions and also for helping developers get a better cognitive understanding of what each element is doing. So for example, you might have header, double underscore navigation item, and then two dashes and then selected. So header navigation item selected. So header in this instance is the block. The navigation item is the element and selected is the modifier. So yeah, so modifiers are different states within. So if you have a button, for example, it'd be like disabled or active, things like that. And so block and element are separated by two underscores and element and modifier are separated by two dashes. And so it it looks a little weird. Yeah, the names can get pretty long, but it absolutely helps you create a hierarchy of information. And it also plays really nicely with SAS nesting. We'll talk about SAS, uh, you know, in one of the next sections. I really like BEM. I've used it for a long time, but uh, it does help you avoid some of these things. Do you guys work with BEM? Like, have you heard of it? Do you use it? Yeah, I I really like using BEM as a uh, way of naming my classes. Um, something that I think is super cool is, you know, when you create like a modifier, for example, you can just, um, you can add the normal, you know, for example, header class, but you can also had, add the header dash dash selected or whatever. Actually, that wouldn't make sense for here, but whatever, you can add the modifier after the header item. And with that, it makes it super easy to just change that like one modifier, but you can keep all the other styling. So you can add two classes and you can separate those out. And I think that actually lends itself to much cleaner CSS. Absolutely. So it goes back to this idea of like, don't repeat yourself, right? In contrast, another popular, it's not even another because it's different. uh, Smacks is something I haven't personally worked with, but it is quite popular for CSS architecture. Uh, And so it's, it's denoted as scalable and modular architecture for CSS. So that's what Smacks stands for. And it's based on this idea of five different categories, which are base, the uh, so any default values you might have, or like padding, margin, etc., Layout, which is like header, footer, main, any big components in your layout. Uh, module is the third one. So reusable modular parts of your design, such as like a nav bar, or a sidebar, a footer, things like that. I said footer and layout. Ignore that. No footer. But reusable parts of your design. State, so how different modules or layouts look within a particular state. So whether they're active or inactive, expanded. And then lastly, theme. So similar to state rules and that they kind of describe how your modules or layouts might look, right? And so this is 
more of an architecture than a naming convention, but, uh, and the goal is to not mix several categories into one file. It should be pretty easy for you to go and say like, okay, I need to change my footer CSS. I know I have to go into the layout section. And so you're not going to get a ton of redundant code. It's not going to be specificity wars, and it really helps you architect your, your code that way. So with that, unless there are any comments, I think we can move on into SAS, uh, which is something that we have mentioned already. Yeah, so let's talk about preprocessors. So if you're unfamiliar with what it is, it's a scripting language that extends the default capabilities of CSS. So it gives us uh, all kinds of additional options to use logic in our CSS and include variables and nesting and inheritance and mixins and functions and all kinds of really cool stuff. So there are three primary types of preprocessors. There's SAS, which I think the four of us are most familiar with. There's LESS, and then there's STYLUS. So let's talk about SAS first. So that stands for Syntactically Awesome Style Sheet. Uh, it actually started back in 2006, which kind of blows my mind that it was that long ago at this point. I don't know if you were aware of that. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's yeah. a while ago. Yeah, that's a while ago. <laughs> I feel like I thought it was new in like 2013. Right? And it's, I mean, I it's evolved it. over time, but it's been around for a while now. That was yeah, 14 years I, ago? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I thought it was like a new shiny thing in like 2013, 2014 when I started using it. So, no, apparently I was wrong. <laughs> so, there are two different, you know, formats, I guess you can say, of SAS. There's SCSS, which uses, you know, your favorite brackets and semicolons, as you're probably already familiar with. And then there's uh, SASS, which you just uses indentation. You don't need the, the semicolons. You don't need the brackets. Do you have any preferences on which which you use? Yeah. This is one of the most confusing things for people when they get started with SAS. It's like, it's called SAS, but then the ex file extension is SESS, but I also see SASS. Like, what what's the difference? And it's like, it's basically, like, I would attribute it to be, like, the difference between JavaScript syntax for functions versus, like, Python, where, like, Python's more indentation-focused. And uh, I personally don't like that because I... I miss things very easily and it's easy to get tripped up over indentation uh, and then, you know, curly braces. Yeah. And also if I miss a semicolon, my, my world just kind of collapses on me. So <laughs> I will always use SCSS as long as I will continue to use a preprocessor. So there are also mixins, which are chunks of code that you can import and you can reuse them with an at import tag. So for example, Kelly, that might be like, if you have buttons, so you've got primary, secondary, and tertiary buttons, right? And so primary buttons are the ones in the UI that are filled in with a background color. Secondary, it's just the border. And then tertiary, they look almost like links, right? And so there are going to be certain things for those that you want to be the same, like the, the min width or like the padding and the, and the font size, right? You're going to reuse all of that, but we don't want to repeat ourselves. So you could create like a button mix in that gets imported into them and then just change like, okay, on primary button, I also need a background color, but on secondary, I, I don't, I just want a border. So would that be, that would be like a good use case for that, I think. Yeah. And also, I don't know if this is actually a good use case or not, but I created a Flexbox mix-in. So I never have to remember for the most part. I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, write it all out. I can just easily include what, uh, what I need for Flexbox for a specific element. And along with mixins, there are also partials for separating in code. So that's going to be prefaced uh, using underscores. And this is something I use pretty regularly on in my code base. What do you what about you? Me too. 
Do you know what the underscores are used for, Kelly? Tell me. So when you preface a .scss file or a .sass file with an underscore, it's telling the compiler, essentially, don't compile this as a full SAS file. It's going to be a partial. And when you include these partials in different files, you can omit that leading underscore. You don't need it when you're importing it. But it's just basically saying like, hey, this is not going to be a full SAS or a full CSS file that gets compiled. It's just going to be used in other things, right? So an example of this might be you have a base partial, right? So all of your stylings for base elements like all h1s or all paragraphs would be in this file and then maybe you've got a variables partial you're going to define all of your colors and your type scale and things like that but you don't want these to be full css files at the end of the day so you can import them let's say into an index.scss file and this index.scss file is what we want right we don't care about all the little partials we just need this one file that gets imported and it allows you to maintain the separation of jobs essentially to different files so you know exactly where you're going uh, to, to change a color variable, for example. It goes back to the architecture we just discussed. But you don't have to import a ton of different CSS files, right? Because we want to maintain performance here. So partials allow you to separate these concerns without having to import a ton of CSS files into your document. Cool. In my last and personal favorite feature of using SAS is nesting. So you can nest your, how do I explain this? I can visualize it, but I can't explain it. This kind of, you could, like, let's say you've got a navigation, right? So we let's say we have a nav bar. It's a nav element. And inside you've got an unordered list. And then you've got list items with anchors inside. This is what you would typically see for a navigation bar. And what SAS allows you to do is declare, all right, on my nav element, you open your curly brace if you're using SCSS. Inside, let's put uh, UL, right? So all the unordered lists inside of this nav element. So not on all unordered lists in the whole document, just those that are inside of this nav item we want to add these styles to, right? So in a nav bar, you would use an unordered list, but you didn't want those bullet points, right? So I only want to set this list style type to none for list items inside the nav bar. This is where nesting can come in because it lets you be more specific and intentional with your styles as opposed to setting like classes on absolutely everything. Yeah, another really cool uh, feature of nesting is we were talking about nesting and how it's really cool for that. So for example, if you have a header and then a navigation or underscore underscore navigation, you can have the underscore underscore navigation nested under with an and symbol so that you don't have to have a string of classes. You could just have that one class and you don't have to have a bunch of classes. So it's also really helpful. And that's, uh, I don't know if that's why that, uh, that convention came about, but it's super friendly for nesting here and still keeping your classes uh, with one, one level of specificity. I don't know if I said that right, Emma, but... <laughs> One thing I will say is that over-nesting things and relying on that rather than class names is like one of my biggest pet peeves because it essentially makes it so that you can't reuse your CSS anywhere else in your application. So you have like eight levels deep of classes and classes within classes and all these things and you can't actually reuse your CSS anywhere else in your application. And so I would definitely try to avoid that and use nesting when it makes sense, but don't just 
use it instead of class names. I yeah, I, I try to cap mine at like three levels deep max. Like think about like your file system on your computer, right? Like if you nest things super vertically, it's going to be miserable to try to find things. I try to cap it at three with the exception of like pseudo classes. So like and colon hover or and, you know, if we're talking like hover state or focus state, then I'll make an exception maybe for like a fourth level. But yeah, it's agree. Yeah, totally. Because that point is, is to make it more organized, not make it more disorganized. So. Yeah. And if you use uh, VS Code, there is an extension called StyleLint that will yell at you once you hit that three nested mark and be like, hey, you're doing too much nesting. Stop it. So really useful if you're like me and you don't really pay attention as you're just like, you know, mashing your fingers onto the keyboard. and You're like, oh, that was like eight nested. Okay, I don't actually do that. But really, <laughs> really useful extension. It's called StyleLint. All right. Uh, so let's talk about less really fast. So I personally have not used less, but I know that Bootstrap was originally built with using less. And I think it was like version four that Bootstrap switched over to using SAS. Um, are any of you familiar with, with less and do you use it? I don't think so. I think that like the second version of Bootstrap moved to it or something like okay. that. And the original was CSS. I'm not totally sure, but... Something along those lines. I don't even know what version of Bootstrap we're on at this point. It could be like 16. It could be three. I don't know. Yeah, no clue. <laughs> I, yeah, I think I only used less uh, during my first year as a web developer, and that's because I was using Bootstrap. So I am definitely not as familiar with it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not either. I just know it exists. Like, that sounds okay. terrible, but... <laughs> Great. So we're not going to go into detail about less since none of us really use it. And the third one, which we also don't use, is Stylus, which I know exists, but I cannot tell you any, anything beyond that. I think, uh, doesn't it also use indentation? Oh, it could. I think that it doesn't use semicolons, maybe, too. I was looking at a friend's project that used it, and I was very confused by it and tried to convert it to SAS, and it didn't work. And anyways, that's my only style of story. If I remember correctly, the variables, instead of being using like a dollar sign to define them, it uses an, like an at symbol, which really threw me off. Oh, man. That would confuse me. Yeah, me too. So, so we, are, we are not team stylist, but... How do we feel about UI frameworks? Allie, do you want to talk about them? Yeah, so I think that all of us, to some extent, were kind of brought up in the bootstrap era. <laughs> at least this is web developers, at least. I know that I was where I was using bootstrap before I really even understood CSS for real. So it was released in 2011. It was originally part of Twitter, and it eventually branched off from Twitter and wasn't part of it anymore, but it was super, super popular for a while because it had this grid system where instead of having to use floats or any of the other hacks that you had to use before Flexbox and Grid, you could use their grid system in order to make things responsive and templated really well. Uh, one of the issues with this is that every website started looking like bootstrappy and you could immediately tell that a website was using bootstrap. So another one that I really liked using at this time was materialized CSS, which used Google's material design style, but had a lot of the same awesome functionality of bootstrap. Did you all use a lot of bootstrap back in the day? No. Really? It was the only thing I learned. I took one web development course in college and like day one was uh, HTML. Day two was CSS. Day three was Bootstrap. And that was like, that was what we used. And But like you said, every app started looking the same. And at some point it was like, oh, that's a Bootstrap app. <laughs> 
Honestly, yeah. I I probably never really used it because I started coding way before UI frameworks really started popping up. And once I started seeing everybody talking about Bootstrap, I was like, this is really overwhelming. I don't want to learn it, so I'm not going to use it. <laughs> I remember learning uh, Bootstrap uh when I was actually not around a bunch of front-end developers. So a fun fact about me is the first year of uh, my web development journey, I thought I was going to be a back-end developer. Um, and I think that was because I wasn't around a lot of front-end developers. So I didn't, I just heard a bunch of people hating on front-end. And, but anyway, so they used Bootstrap a lot because they didn't have to do front-end that as much. So I was very convinced that Bootstrap was very cool. And I'm sure it is still very cool for a lot of reasons. But uh, I remember going to a interview and the front end developer super started ragging on it because of the complaints that you were talking about where it was super obvious that something was bootstrap. And I was like, Oh, whoops, I guess I <laughs> this begs the question of like, why did we need UI frameworks? And one of the big benefits was that it provided a grid system. I think that's where bootstrap really, sh- you know, shined for a while. But as we've developed more and more uh, in the CSS world, like we just talked about Flexbox and Grid, they have almost um, caused that reasoning behind leveraging a UI framework to become obsolete, right? Because why would you include an entire, um, you know, project like Bootstrap in your in your product just for a grid system, right? So now that we're developing these new things, you know, these UI frameworks are maybe becoming a little bit, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say obsolete. I, they're never going to go away, right? They're really good. They have good purposes. But if you want the look and feel of a custom uh, website or, or brand, uh, that's definitely not the way to go. Yeah. I think another thing with it was the cascade was really bizarre with it. Mm. Like, it was one of the only times that using important was actually yeah, really you necessary had to. in some extent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that that totally hurt a lot of people's CSS learning process Absolutely. for a couple of years. Going off of that, the one that I hear about most that I personally haven't used, but I see it all the time is Tailwind CSS, which is a more recent one. Have any of you used Tailwind? Nope. My coding coach project, uh, the lead dev was uh, very adamant about using Tailwind. So our pro- my project is using Tailwind, but I've never used it and I don't know much about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it allows you to customize it more. So it's instead of like Bootstrap where you have these pre-styled components and you add in these CSS classes and all of that, it's just for building your own CSS. But it looks really cool. We haven't used it, but could be something to check out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so I think with that, I think we can move into our wins for this week. We got some awesome submissions for listener wins, and I want to share today one of those with you. So Bhavani, she made her first code contribution to a big open source Python project, and it took her about six months. The code review process was a little hectic, and she was, you know, debating whether or not to continue with it, but she got her first approval and said that it's all worth it. So huge congratulations to you. Lindsay, what was your win for this week? So I opened up a few new tiers of my Patreon. Um, I was kind of debating doing doing that for a while just because I was kind of nervous, like who's going to pay to do things. But I decided to go ahead and uh, add a couple more tiers. And one was to get a blog post uh, a day early for certain uh, payment levels and one for uh, one-on-one accessibility sessions once a quarter. So I'm really excited about that. Um, 
because I mostly it's a confidence thing. Like I didn't have the confidence to do that for a while. And I also didn't have the ability to do that for a while. And I'm very happy that I am going through with it. That's great. Allie, what about you? Yeah, so this weekend was one of the tougher online weekends that I have dealt with. I was seriously seconds away from deleting my Twitter and blog and just being like, I'm done with this whole internet thing. It's over. But I did keep them and I did make it through this weekend. So I'm pretty proud of that, even though it's like not a super happy win. How about you, Kelly? I just want to say, Allie, I know that your your weekend was was very tough and I'm very glad that you're sticking around with us too. (laughs) Thank you. So my win this week is I have decided to drop the word agency from our our name, the Taproom Agency. So we're just now the Taproom and we've been working on a rebrand for a while and we officially have an approved logo and I'm really excited about it. And hopefully soon I'll be able to show it to the world. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. What's your win, Emma? Uh, so I got I got married again. <laughs> that sounds weird. Uh, we've been legally married for over a year, but we had our wedding and I said my wedding vows in German, which is super cool because I live in Germany and I finally felt confident enough to like say my vows in German, which is really, you know, a big win. Like not only is saying vows in front of people watching you like nerve wracking, but the fact that you also did them in like another language is really impressive. Right? No one knew what I was saying, too. So it was funny. It was like, I ended it with saying, like, you know, I hope you understand what I said because my friends and family, like, definitely have no idea. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so if you uh, listening today want to get your win featured, please sign up for our newsletter. We always have, like, really cool and up-to-date information in there. So, so make sure you go do that. So, yeah, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow us on Twitter for updates and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So thanks for listening.